you have a Bible, let's go to that book of Acts, please. Acts, or on your device, or whatever. When I started preaching, I never thought to say that. Now I have to. So we're going through Acts in our studies on Sunday morning here. Uh, we're in chapter 8. So last week we, we looked at part of this and we skipped kind of the introduction. We're going to come back to that and uh, I mean, pick up the first four verses. Then we're going to skip the section we talked about last week with Simon and uh, go right back into Philip's ministry uh, with the Ethiopian here. So a few years ago I had a uh, conversation with our treasurer, Jason Schultz. Uh, I think he probably either had a... Uh, Milwaukee Brewers hat or t-shirt on or something like that. can't remember what it was. And we began to talk a little bit about baseball. And I think I mentioned liking the Detroit Tigers logo, the old English D. You know, a lot of tradition there. You know, being from Detroit, you know, think about that. And so we talked about logos a little bit here. And he was wearing, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers uh, logo. So we talked about that and a little bit. And he was saying how it was so good. How he just loved this logo. And uh, quite honestly, I wasn't getting it, okay? Uh, I, but, you know, I mean, you know, since he signs my paycheck, I went along with it. Um, and, you know, I was like, okay, and everything. I think, you know, he's a smart guy, so he probably figured out pretty quickly that, you know, there's a blank stare there, you know, going on. And, and he's like, well, this, it's just, I mean, this, it's just really cool, this logo. Like, you know, it has like this symbolism in it. And I was like, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a baseball glove, you know, baseball team makes sense to me. And it was like this, this, this look of disappointment came over his face. <laughs> and he was like, no, Jeremy, there, there's more to it there. And he very kindly walked me through the logo, how that there's an M and a B there for Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, wait, what? You know, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I was just, mind was blown. So kids, stay in school, and you will be like me one day, okay? All right, okay? So, you know, I mean, just this, I was like, what? I, I, and now every time I see this logo, I'm thinking, that's a good logo. That's a really good logo. And so if Jason Schultz has had no other influence in this church other than that, he has done that, okay? And so I was like, that's so much better than a D, like an old English D that you can never read, you know? And so, but it was like one of those moments where I was like, wait, wait, what? Wait, oh, wow, it was one of those things. Now, let's go back to Acts here. So up until now, in our study of Acts, we've been, Luke has primarily been seeing the gospel growth through the lens like of a, like a wide-angle lens. We're, we're, we're seeing it in, in great quantities. We're seeing lots of people. Like last week, we talked about how that Philip went to Samaria, and there was the Samaritans uh, that were, uh, uh, you know, in groups. Now, we, there have been some individuals that he talked about, but it's primarily been negative examples. I mean, he talked about uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Luke did, and when he's writing this book here, and those are negative examples. Simon, as we looked at last week, that's a negative example. The, the one possible positive one that of an individual would be the lame man when he was healed, but we don't, we're not even given his name. And so, so it's like Luke is kind of just given this wide-angle lens, whatever. And now it seems like when he's writing, because remember, he's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. This is part two. The Gospel of Luke is part one. And so he's writing these two volumes set to this guy by the name of Theophilus to say, you can have certainty about Jesus Christ. You can have certainty in the faith of Jesus Christ. And so what Luke is starting to do now, what he's going to do now in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, he's going to zoom in on individuals and he's going to show how the gospel changed their lives, okay? And so today, it's the Ethiopian eunuch. Then in chapter 9, he's going to talk about a Saul of Tarsus, who we were just introduced to. And then in chapter 10, when we get there, we're going to be introduced by, to a man by the name of Cornelius. And so Luke will zoom in on these three individuals to show how the gospel is working in individual lives from different backgrounds and different circumstances and changing them after giving the backdrop of the wide-angle lens. And so when we come to this text... We're going to look at, uh, uh, like I said, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch here, and we're going to see how that this question of like, wait a minute, wait, what, what, was probably asked by two different people 
from very different backgrounds, and we're going to see how that impacted them. But let me read the text. Uh, we're going to start in verse 4 of, of uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, of Acts 8. So it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, remember, the reason why they were scattered is because there was persecution going. Saul was going out trying to arrest people and all the Christians and things like that, so they got scattered out of Jerusalem. This is all starting in Jerusalem. And so they're scattered, but as they go out, they're preaching the gospel. Verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being, done, what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, so it was great joy in Samaria, in the cities of Samaria, and this is a great thing that's happening. Let's drop down. We're going to skip the section we looked at last week, so we're going to drop down to verse 25, or verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, okay? That's Luke's little uh, clarifying note there. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official from, uh, we pronounce it Candace, but it was probably actually technically pronounced Kandanki. Uh, that's actually a title. It's not the person's name. It's not her name. It's a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar, okay? And so this was Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Now, some of you are reading right now, you notice that there may have been a verse that got skipped there, verse 37, in some of your translations. And the reason why that is, for that, I just want to clarify that, is in, in some translations it says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The reason why in this translation that I typically uh, preach from, the English Standard Version is not in there, is because English, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so there's different text that we have of that. Some texts include that, some texts don't. The earliest manuscripts that we have available to us do not have this. In fact, what most people think, most biblical scholars think happened here is that as they were translating this later on, years later on, they wanted to include uh, a confession of faith so there would be no misunderstanding of what that this, that this eunuch truly understood. That could have been partly because of what happened in the last chapter with uh, Simon saying that he believed, but he really didn't believe. It could have been because it was a baptismal form, uh, a formula at the time. But nonetheless, the reason why I didn't read that, and it's not in this translation, is not because you know, they just decided to cut it out. It's because the oldest manuscripts that we have available, that, that verse isn't in there. Just want to clarify that. But some of you may have a translation. I know the King James Version includes that. Probably uh, the Revised Standard, maybe some other translations have it as well. Just wanted to clarify that. So, verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through the and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So that is our text for this morning. Let me pause and ask God's blessing as, as we look at it. God, I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to discuss this text of Scripture with those who've gathered here and watching on, those who are watching online. Father, we pray that 
it would be a time where you're honored and you're glorified. I pray that I'd be able to communicate in a way that is accurate to the text, that is clear, that is helpful, and that ministers to my soul and to those who are listening. God, we need you for this. And so we're pausing now to uh, remind ourselves and to confess to you that we recognize that we need you for all things. So thank you. Thank you that we can study this text of Scripture. We pray that it be helpful. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So I said that there's two different men, Philip and Ethiopian, from different backgrounds, different circumstances, but they're asking probably similar questions as this story goes on. So the first one would be like Philip's potential question when he was like, wait a minute, you want me to do what? Now, let me explain why uh, he might have been asking that. Because sometimes God gives, let's go back, sometimes God gives commands that seem absurd to us. I, we see this all throughout the Bible. We see this, you know, in, even in Acts here, uh, in chapter 5, after the, uh, the apostles were preaching and they were thrown into prison. They were thrown into prison. They're miraculously let out, okay? So they get out of prison and they're told, they're commanded. The angel of the Lord tells them, okay, go to the temple and start preaching again. Like immediately. They, they get out of prison and so the next command is go back and start, start preaching again. That seems counterintuitive. It's like we just got arrested for this. We just had to deal with all this and now you're telling us to go back and the answer is yes. God has a plan with that. In Acts chapter 10, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to get there where Paul, excuse me, Peter is going to receive uh, instruction that he's supposed to eat some food, right? And it's food that had been considered ceremonially unclean for the Jewish people for all generations beforehand. In fact, they were told, don't eat of these things. And uh, now they're saying, you can go eat this. And Peter's like, wait a minute, no, I'm not going to do this. And it goes back and forth, this conversation. And he says, no, you need to do this. No doubt, maybe Peter had in his mind, is like, listen, I remember someone saying, eat of a fruit that shouldn't be eaten. And I don't know what happened. I know what happened with that. And now you're telling me to eat something that's supposedly forbidden. And so that was probably rolled around in the back of his mind. But yet he did it because God commanded him to. But it seemed absurd to him at the time. Uh, in chapter 20 of this text, uh, of this book, uh, Paul is later on, he's going to be uh, in, finishing up his ministry, his, his minist uh, missionary trips, and, and uh, he's going to get back to Jerusalem. And, and it's going to be told to him, listen, when you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. And he goes, anyway. And, and people are actually telling him, don't go, don't go get arrested, don't, we need you here. And he says, listen, this is what God's told me to do, and so I'm going to go do it. It just seems absurd at times, some of the things that God has commanded to, to do. It's not just an axe. I mean, back in the Old Testament, we see stories about Gideon, and, and Gideon was a, a, a military leader, and he was supposed to, and this was during the conquest when they were supposed to get the land that God promised him, uh, to Israel. And so one of the stories that we see in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of Gideon, and, and, and he's told to go lead this battle and go lead this army. And he, so he gets all the people he can, and, and then God tells him, listen, you got too many people. Wait, what? <laughs> you know, too many people for battles? You need to cut this down. And so through a series of interesting events, God whittles out and brings this army way down small, way so much that it would be like impossible to win the battle. But yet God was working in that and he brought the victory for them. But it just seemed like, that's crazy. That Jonah told to go to Nineveh. Um, and Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to go there. Jonah was a prophet of God, and Nineveh was this terrible, wicked city. We see the city. We see the story in the Old Testament of, of how he was told, you need to go to the city. And they, they were known for torturing. They were known for being brutal towards people just like Jonah. And Jonah was supposed to go and tell them that their lies were wrong, and God was going to judge them, and they needed to repent. And he didn't want that job. Not necessarily only out of fear for his personal safety, but because... He wanted them judged. Um, some of you have been seeing those Bernie Mitten memes going around. Greatest thing on the internet, man. I tell you what, if the internet wasn't created for anything other than that, uh, that it was just so funny to me, and, and someone sent me this one. Um, so Nineveh is spared, and, and we know that Jonah is pouting under a tree in, in, the, in the story here. Uh, God told him to do something that was kind of crazy, seemed absurd. So the point is this, is 
that Philip is told to do something here that seems odd. Okay, he, he's supposed to leave Samaria. Now, uh, I don't know if you can see or not up here, but Samaria is kind of this, this central area right here, kind of central in the map. And um, uh, Jerusalem is down here, so we see where these lines kind of meet. That's Jerusalem. And if you picked up a handout, there's a map on the back of that, by the way. Uh, but there's, there, here's Jerusalem. And so Philip is up in this area here, and he's, he's, he's having a great ministry. I mean, people are being saved. I mean, this has just been, I mean, the Bible says there's men and women there. They're getting saved. It says there's great joy in the city. It says that there's this, I mean, great things that are happening there. And so what God tells Philip to do, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave the fruitful work, okay? I want you to, to leave this. Now, now, think about what may have been going through Philip's mind. I mean, Philip may have thought, wait a minute here, there's a lot of work to be done here. There's people that need to be taught. There's people that need to be baptized. There's, there's churches that need to start. There's, there's so much work to be done here. And God's like, okay, leave. Go. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then he's supposed to go south, so leaving from the Samaritan cities up here, he's supposed to come down through Jerusalem, not back to Jerusalem to set up his work out of Jerusalem again. That's not what God wants him to do. He says, I want you to go into this road which goes down to Gaza, okay? So this is the Mediterranean Sea, Dead Sea over here. Egypt is down here where the door is. And so uh, he says, I want you to go down here. And then we're told, that it's a desert place. One of the ways that we can translate some of this is even not just location or direction, but also time at noon. And so he's like, okay, during the hottest part of the day, I want you to leave a fruitful work. I want you, I want you to stop you know, being where, where people are, are turning to Christ in droves, and there's great joy in the city. This is awesome. This is happening. This is a wonderful thing. So I want you to leave that, and I want you to go down. That must have seemed a little absurd to Philip. But he goes. Now, how does this relate to us today? I mean, we have things that God tells us to do that are very counterintuitive. And we're told to love our enemies. I mean, that's what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is about loving enemies. The reason why is the Christian faith is about this because that's what God did with us. Because when we're born, the Bible says, we're born in sin, right? Okay, the Bible says that we are born dead. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're born dead in our sins and trespasses, okay? And so that's where we're at. And, and so when we're born, we're naturally enemies to God because of our sin nature. So what Jesus did on the cross is that he actually came and he showed love to his enemies. And so when we we follow Christ, it is only natural then that he would say, you need to love your enemies. Now, that's hard. It's difficult. It seems counterintuitive at times. We're told to put others first. That goes totally against the culture, totally against the culture of this world to put other people first. But yet, that's what we're told to do. We're even, used, we're even given phrases like, die to yourself, okay? It just means like, look, I just need to make sure that I'm living this life not for my, just my own benefit, but I'm living it for the benefit of Jesus Christ and his work. We're told to be humble, which is counterintuitive and countercultural. We're told to be willing to risk personal safety for the gospel's sake. We're told to put up with one another. Uh, one of the reasons why church is so difficult at times is because we're a bunch of sinners together, and we all have different personalities and different backgrounds. We're, one of the best things about a, healthy, a mark of a healthy church is that we're not just a, a homogeneous group of people that we're all the exact same. We come from different backgrounds, and we have different opinions and different ideas, but it makes it difficult at times to put up with one another, but this is what we're told to do. We're told to pray for abusive kings and godless governments in 1 Timothy, unless, uh, obviously, we submit to that unless they ask us to do something against God. Now, we're told not to be anxious. We're literally told, don't be anxious. If that's not one of the hardest things to live, if that's not one of the most counterintuitive things to do, I don't know what is. We're told to be generous, to give things away. We're told to be willing to forgive. We're told not to seek revenge. And the list could go on and on and on about all the seemingly absurd things that we're told to do, we're told to live. But yet, it's the way we're supposed to live. And just like Philip, we understand the wisdom of God here. See, the amazing thing is this, is that we have no indication that Philip resisted God's command in this. Even though he may have had that question pop in his mind, wait, what? Wait, you want me to do what? He went and he went there. And you know what? This is how the, the beauty of this is this is how the gospel went to the, uh, to the ends 
of the earth. You remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus, before he goes up into heaven, he's meeting with the disciples. He's up in the upper room, and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We talked about that several weeks ago, about how that this was uh, uh, when the Holy Spirit did an indwelling work in believers. And so he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He says, and you will be my witnesses. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts or to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is about. You see, it started in Jerusalem. I told you this is where that conversation happened. Some of the things we've already talked about in this book happened in Jerusalem. Judea is this region just surrounding it, and so it just spills out just a little bit around the city of Jerusalem. So it's more of like a region or a county, we would understand. It'd be like not just in Verona or not just in Madison, but in Dane County. So it spreads out. So that's what he means by Jerusalem. And then he said Samaria, which is another area, which is more to the north. But then that in group that included a group of people that no one would have thought should have been included in the gospel message because they were half Jew, half Gentile. So it goes up there. And now when Philip is told to go down this road here and meet someone there, he's going to meet an Ethiopian eunuch who's going to go back to Ethiopia, which is in probably not the country of Ethiopia today, but more of the regions of Sudan. Um, which is south of, of the Nile, the Delta, and all that. That's how, in that day, the ends of the earth would have been considered Ethiopia. And so, this is how the gospel's going out. This is Acts 1-8. It's going out, and Philip got to be part of it. He didn't know that. He didn't know what awaited him. He had no idea, but that when he was willing to obey the command that was seemingly absurd, God used it for tremendous glory and good in fulfilling the Great Commission here. And so the issue really when we're asked to do these things, these difficult things that I've already talked about here, the issue is, do you trust God? That's really what it boils down to, right? Is do we trust God that he is not going to ask us to do something that is going to be uh, a wrong or going to be useless? He's going to, whatever he tells us to do, work hard as to the Lord and not to men. So to, to you know, uh, 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 honor your boss, to not seek to be lazy, to work hard, to be a good parent, to be a respectful child, to be a good student, all these type of things here, what God tells us to do when it seems counterintuitive, we need to understand that it is God making those commands, not just so that he can give us a list of rules and things to do, but it's so that it is for his glory, but our good as well. And this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing this is what Philip was doing. So it's about a matter of how do we trust God? But here's the reality. Um, is, uh, uh, or a question that I want to ask is, which command of God could you be ignoring because you think them too hard or too confusing? I mean, a lot of times what I do as, as a teacher, a lot of times what I'm doing as a preacher or counselor or whatever, is I'm not revealing a lot of new information. I do that sometimes for some people. I, I, I teach things, and it's the first time I've heard it, you know, and, and that's wonderful. But a lot of what I do is simply reminding people of what they already know and trying to encourage them to say, this is true, this is true. And isn't that a lot of times what we do when we seek advice from someone is in our heart, we, we kind of know what we should be doing, but we just need someone to remind us of it. So the question I'm just posing to you today is of all the things that you know that God asks of you, the things that you know that God would want for you, which ones of those are we ignoring because they just don't make sense? You see, the problem is, is that when we ignore certain commands or certain things that God asks of us, simply because they don't make sense, we are putting ourselves in our wisdom ahead of God. We're saying we know more. We're saying that we have a better perspective. We're saying, well, I know what the Bible says is, but I can't tell you how many times I've said this, and I always was well, like, come out of my skin when someone says this to me. So I say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I was like, no, 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 no. You should have stopped that sentence, okay? I know what the Bible says, full stop. Okay? Because once you start saying, well, yeah, but, you know, now we're saying, okay, now we're above the scriptures. Now we're above God. 
And we believe that the Scriptures are God's Word given to us so that we would know how to live. Peter talks about how he gives us all things for life and godliness. It says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is profitable. This is Paul's writing to Timothy. He says it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect. And that's not saying morally perfect. That's saying complete, lacking nothing. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse verses 16 and 17 say. And so this is the reason why when we see the Word of God, we need to respond to it. And so we don't have the option to say, no, I'm not going to live that way or I'm not going to listen to that. So I told you it comes back to an issue of trust. But once we realize that you can completely trust God without reservation, His strange commands become blessed adventures rather than vexations. Once you realize that, you know, God, if he's asking me to do this and it looks hard and it looks difficult and I don't know how he's going to provide for it and it's not something I really want to do. Once we know, though, that that's coming from a God who loves you and a God who wants what's best for you and he's not going to send you in a path just to toy with you, then it becomes more adventuresome. It becomes saying, well, we're going to see what God's going to do rather than something to be anxious about. See, it all comes back to trust. That's what Philip had. Philip, for whatever reason, we don't know a lot about him. We were introduced to him a little bit ago, but for whatever reason, this guy, he trusted God, and he trusted Jesus, and we should too. He's worthy of it. What else would God have to do to make you trust him? I mean, think about what he's done. He's given his son. He's given his son for us. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes here. But I told you there's two people they have similar questions. Philip's saying, wait, you want me to do what? But it boils down to him trusting God in obeying these seemingly absurd commands. But I want to talk about the unit for a few minutes here. His question is slightly different. His question may have been, wait, I, wait, I, I, I can be part of God's family. Now, the reason why I'm inferring that is just by the things that he's saying here and, and a little bit about what we can infer from his story. You see, um, I think that this guy was frustrated. I think that the Ethiopian just had tremendous frustration. Now, why do I think that? Well, why would somebody, why would someone who has incredible wealth, why would someone who has access to anything he wants, why would he be willing to take a thousand-mile journey to go to a temple and to try to worship. What would, what would be motivating that? I mean, you know, I mean, today, I mean, it's hard for people to, to, you know, drive more than 10 minutes to a church service. I mean, this guy with a thousand-mile journey. Some people estimate, man, this thing must have lasted five months, like, one way. I don't know if that's true or not, but... This was, this was not like he could just jump in an airplane and go. He got onto this chariot, which was not necessarily a military chariot. It was probably more like a wagon. And just slowly, you know, probably an ox or something, just slowly pulling this thing along. And why would he do that? I think he was empty. I think that that's what motivates him. I think that he was searching. I think that he was discouraged. I think that, uh, you know, he had his options in life were really limited. In fact, I think that when he got to Jerusalem, he probably was disappointed because he went to Jerusalem and because of who he was, he would not have been allowed in the temple. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 makes it very clear, eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. It makes it very clear that because of the man being castrated, that that was considered abhorrent and that was wrong. And this was pretty, not super common, but it was common for, for uh, you know, pagan kings to want eunuchs because they felt like that would uh, protect uh, their, their queens and, and, and harems and things like that. This is the reason why they did this. But, you know, they paid them well, but they were considered socially on the low end things. So he wouldn't have been able to go into the temple. So he gets all this way to Jerusalem, and he wouldn't have been able to, at the most, at the most, he may have been able to get to the court of the Gentiles, but even that suspect. Maybe he could have gone to the synagogue, and he could have heard something dread. So this man, I mean, his worship 
options were limited. And so what he wanted to, to follow or find out about this God that was talking about in Jerusalem, because there was a contingency down in Egypt that, uh, of the gospel. And so uh, uh, no doubt in the diaspora that this was happening, no doubt from uh, uh, other Hebrew scriptures that there was Yahweh talked about down in Egypt. And so he'd heard about this somehow. And so he gets there, he goes there seeking something, seeking the emptiness, seeking the hole. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're seeking something. And maybe you can identify with the eunuch at this point. Maybe there's someone watching online and you just, you're just like, I, I, I'm seeking something about God. I don't know what it is. Well, listen well today because this eunuch can speak to you. His story can speak to you here. This guy, he was frustrated. He gets to Jerusalem and he cannot, he cannot worship inside the temple. He's barred. You're not welcome here. You're unclean. You are not allowed in. Somehow, you know, he gets a copy of the scriptures. He had money, so he could buy it. Maybe it was the text that was read in the synagogue. I don't know how he got the copy of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, but he got it. But then we see he can't understand. He's having a hard time understanding. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't understand the Scriptures and we always have to have an interpreter for the Scriptures. That's not what this text is saying. But it is saying that we do need help. It is saying that we do need the Spirit to guide us. It is saying that this is why we do teaching and things like that. And so here we have the story here of of this frustrating moment of while he's reading here, and, and Philip even asks him the question, do you understand this? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? But his frustration is going to lead to hope here because God shows great mercy to this man. And, and he shows his providence. I mean, how is God's providence shown? His, his providence is shown in the sense that he uh, uh, sends Philip, okay? And so it's, it's it's almost humor story here. I mean, you just look at what the text says here. It says he's returning, he's seated in his chariot, I'm in verse 28, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah, and then asked the question. So, so here, Philip gets the message, like sees this caravan going on, and so the, the Spirit of God says, listen, go, go, go talk to the guy in the chariot. That seems kind of odd. That seems kind of daunting. But yet Philip goes and does it. So he runs up next to the chariot, right? Probably not going super fast, but nonetheless, it's faster than a walking pace for a normal man. And so he's jogging alongside here, and he hears, he hears this guy reading out loud. And that would have been common. That would have been typical today. Reading out loud uh, been easier for comprehension's sake. So he's reading this out loud. Philip understands. He recognizes, right, wait, this guy, he's reading Isaiah. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been traveling in a different country, and all you're hearing is the foreign language that you don't speak, and then all of a sudden you hear someone speak English, and you're just like, whoa, they're speaking English. I recognize that. You know, I've been in, in different countries and things like that. And, and, you know, I remember being over in France with my wife who speaks French, obviously. And so she was doing all the talking for me and all that stuff. And it was great. I was, I was having the time of my life. Didn't have to talk to anyone. It was wonderful. And then, and then when someone would talk to me in English, everything would be like, oh, I recognize this. I know that's exactly what was happening with Philip here. He's like, he's like, I know what he's reading. And so he asked the question. He's like running alongside. He's like, hey, hey, do you understand this? Now, now, we know that he's not invited up into the chariot until verse 31. And so there's like this little brief conversation. He's like, well, how can I? And so he's right, well, you know, maybe I can help with that. You know, I mean, it's a pretty humorous thing to think about. And so he invites him up there to sit with him. And he begins to speak to him about what this text means. It's just wonderful. So God gave this man, this unit, great providential blessing and sending Philip, it's giving him resources that he could even have a scroll. This would have been taken an enormous amount of money. This would have been a tremendously uh, uh, extravagant purchase, and God made it so that this guy could do this, this eunuch. Let me speak about this word just a little bit more. Of all the scrolls he purchased, it was Isaiah. I don't know how he got it. I don't know whether he selected it. I don't know if it was the text that was read in the synagogue or someone in Jerusalem had told them about it. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't give us any data on that. But what we do know is he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And think about why this would have been hopeful to this man. We know he's reading in chapter 53 because that's where the quote comes from. But back in chapter 11, no doubt the eunuch would have read this. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. No doubt when he got to chapter 11, what we know is chapter 11, and there was no chapter divisions at that time, but no doubt when he would get to what we would understand to be chapter 11, and he read that there was coming a day where God would bring people, he would bring people not just in Jerusalem, but it, would be, it, would, it wouldn't be just people around the temple, it would be people from, and he looked and he saw Egypt. That had to give him hope. He kept reading. I don't know if he made it to chapter 56 or not, but by then it just, I would think he may have, and he had plenty of time to read this. But in chapter 56, it says this. This is what Isaiah 56 says, just right after the text he was studying. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in them my house. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. We can imagine being this year and reading this. And then he's going back and saying, how is this going to happen? And he's reading through this and he's trying to figure this thing out. And he's saying... Is this possible? Is it possible that someone like me, someone who was just denied entrance to the temple, someone who was just denied the opportunity to worship, just someone who was kicked out and someone who was cut off and someone who has said, I'm unclean and someone who, I don't belong here. Is it possible that I one day could be part of God's family? Wait, what? That's what this man's thinking. He had hope from the word of God. And the question is, who is this story about? Is he, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about Isaiah? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? Or, you know, is someone to come? Or what's going on here in Philip? Philip takes that time, and, and he did exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Remember Luke 24, Jesus is talking with some people, and they don't recognize him. This is after the resurrection. And they're saying, you know, Jesus is like, hey, what's been going on? And they're like, hey, you haven't heard what's been going on and everything to tell them about the events of the crucifixion and things of like that. And so then Luke says, Jesus says, and begin with Moses and in all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so what Jesus did in that road to Emmaus is he took and he took all this, this Isaiah text this Isaiah 53 text, this very text that the eunuch was reading, that was one of the texts that Jesus talked to about the people on the road to Emmaus. And he said, listen, this is me. This is talking about me here. So no doubt Philip says, wait a minute, I know the answer to this question. You said, who is this person about? It's, this is about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus here. You know, I, I, I don't want to take time to, to turn to Isaiah 53, but that's the text that this eunuch is reading here. But we're told a lot about what's going to happen, how that he was a, a suffering servant, which has been unusual. It's been, un, uh, it been just mind-blowing to these people. And, and so to the eunuch, that's why he was saying, wait a minute here, this is a suffering servant. Is this someone that's going to come and he's going to bring people in from Egypt and he's going to bring, he's going to make even, even eunuchs, someone like me that could, 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 could be part of this? Who, who is this about and why is he suffering? And because he was recognizing his own suffering. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, it says, and he was talking about Jesus, a prophecy about Jesus. He was despised. Do you think that that didn't resonate with the eunuch? Despised. He kept reading. It says he was cut off. He was not allowed. He was cut off from his people. Don't you think that resonated with the eunuch? And so Jesus was despised. He was excluded. He was the suffering servant. This had to resonate with the eunuch. Jesus was made unclean so that we could be clean. Do you get that? Jesus was kicked out of the camp, to use the metaphor of back in the tabernacle that Hebrews uses. He says, so that we could be brought in. Jesus was excluded. Jesus was despised so that you, so that you, not just the eunuch, so that you and me, we could be brought near to God and we could be part of his family. This is the crucial point. This is the thing that should cause us to say, wait, what? 
I can be brought near to God. My uncleanliness, the person that who I know I am, that I put out a good front, but I know my sinful thoughts. I know my sin nature. Wait a minute, me and all my sin, I can be made clean in God's sight. I can be brought close to God. And, and it's not about something that I have to work towards. It's not about something that I have to just work and work and work. And hopefully in the end, hopefully in the end, it'll all even out. Wait a minute, you're telling me that Jesus did all that for me? You're telling me that Jesus got, it was his righteousness that's going to be put on my account? That's what the gospel's all about? Wait, what? That's what this guy's going through right this, this minute here. And you get the sense by this conversation here that this eunuch, this Ethiopian, was just beginning to dare to hope that he could be forgiven and be included in God's covenantal family. The reason why I say that is look down here at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, here's water. What is preventing me from being baptized? It's almost like a last check. You know, we don't know what Philip said. I mean, we're not, you know, all the conversations is recorded for us. We have every reason to believe that Philip's response would have been similar to Peter's in like chapter 3 when, when he was preaching and he says, you look, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. And he's saying that to people, saying, that, listen, you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and you need to believe in God and then you need to publicly testify to that. And that's what baptism is. It's, it's a way of saying that I, wanna, I, I have been going one direction, but I want to go a different direction. It, it's saying that this is a, a decision that's proving and this is a public testimony of the decision that I've made to follow Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. So we don't have this conversation recorded, but knowing what the other apostles talked about, knowing from Philip's previous ministry, and just common sense, we, we know that he must have been talking about that. And the fact that, that as Philip, was, they were walking along providentially, they come to an area where there's enough water to be baptized, and, and he says, wait a minute, there's some water. There's some water. Is there anything that's preventing me from being baptized? Think about why he would ask it that way. He was daring to hope that someone like him, who was despised, who was cut off, who was rejected, someone like him could be in God's family. So one more time, yes, yes, Philip. Is there anything else? Is there anything that's preventing me? Or can I go and, and be part of God's family now? The beauty is we know what happens. We know the answer to that question. No, there's nothing preventing you. It's a question we all should wrestle with. Is there anything preventing you from following Christ? Is there anything preventing you from just putting aside all the efforts that we try to do to clean ourselves up and try to make ourselves appealing to God? Is there anything? I mean, can we just stop doing that? Because the Bible says that we'll just never get there. Now, I'm not saying good works are bad. Of course good works are good. We're created for good works. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. But not to save us, to serve God with them. So is there anything preventing you? from being baptized, from following Christ, from believing in Him. This is what the Ethiopian is teaching today. And so it's a beautiful thing because what this is teaching is that biblical Christianity transcends culture, nationality, language, social status, and economic position. There's no culture where Christianity belongs to one more than the other. And, and, and this is exactly what the eunuch was hoping for. He was hoping that he could be brought in. And you could be brought in too. And so, I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're hanging on to anything else, you're hanging on to tradition, you're hanging on to good works, you're hanging on to something else other than Jesus Christ, let me just beg you, please, be like this Ethiopian here and say, I just need to follow Jesus. And if you have questions about that, I, uh, you have no idea the joy that I would have to talk to you about that. And if you're watching online and these questions are rolling through your head, send me a note, send me an email, and we will we'll set up a phone call, a Zoom meeting or something, and, and we, will, we will talk about that. So I need to bring this to a close. Let me just ask you this. When was the last time that you were astonished at Christ's substituting work? You see, this is what Christ did, is that he went in the place you, you, for us and for this eunuch. This is what he realized that day. He realized that Jesus endured all the despising, being despised and the suffering. He endured all that. 
in God's sight so that we wouldn't have to do that in God's sight. He, he endured being cut off so that we wouldn't be eternally cut off. And so this is what Jesus did. And, then, and this is the reason why Jesus' perfect life of obedience is so important because it was his righteousness that then gets put on our account if we believe in him. And so this is his substituting work. And let me just, let me just ask you, I mean, you know, for, I don't care if you've been in church your whole life or if this is your first time. Why, does this amaze you? That Christ, that Jesus would do this for us. This is the reason why this Ethiopian was so amazed and so, he just dared to hope. There's nothing else preventing me, right? I can do this, right? And the answer is, of course you can. So when was the last time that was just astonishing? Do you dare believe that he is your substitute? If you haven't been baptized, the question would be, why not? I mean, this is, baptism isn't what saves you. Baptism is just the evidence that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you have not yet done that, why not? I mean, this is this, is this guy did. He couldn't believe what Jesus did for him. He wanted to be like, hey, I, I want people to know, and I want to identify with Jesus. He identified with me. I want to identify with him. This is, this is what I want to do. So if you haven't baptized, you know, we can, we can fill a tank with water, and, and we, can, we can baptize you. You know, we'll, we'll talk and make sure you understand, and, and, and we'd love to do that. doesn't matter if... You know, you're newer or you've been around the church for a long time. doesn't matter. We'd love to have those conversations with you. God is providentially working in your life just like he worked in uh, this Ethiopian's life. He providentially brought things into his life to bring him to a place where he understood the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And God is doing the same thing for you. He's brought you to a place where today I'm trying to be very clear with the gospel so that no one has any excuse of not understanding I've made myself available. If you have questions, I don't have all the answers. It's not like I'm wiser than anyone else, but I know where to go to get the answers, and that's the book, the Word of God, and we'll have those conversations. So let me give you some questions to think about, and then we'll pray and be done. So instead of homework, I just wanted to give you some things to think about. Are you willing to follow God's seemingly absurd commands? That's a question I just want you to wrestle with. When God impresses on your heart to do something, or when you see in the Scriptures in black and white, okay, do this, be faithful here, go there, don't do this. How do you respond to that? Do you find yourself in a debate? Do you find yourself excusing? Do you find yourself negotiating? Those are the wrong answers. We need to we need to follow God completely. And it leads us to some difficult waters. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say if you follow Jesus that your life is going to be easy and that everything's going to be great. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. But I will tell you this. If you do go through a difficult time, it won't be without a purpose. And it will be for good. The second question I want you to wrestle with is, do you see how Jesus removed every barrier between you and God? I mean, every barrier between you and God has been taken away in Jesus Christ. So if you think, well, you know, you don't know what I've done, Jeremy. You don't know the sins I've done. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You say, well, you don't know. Doesn't matter. Jesus did a substituting work for you that is sufficient for you regardless of your circumstances. Because if you're the exception to that, then Jesus' work is inefficient, and Jesus is never inefficient. And so... Do you see how Jesus removed every barrier between you and God? For those of you who say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Does that astonished move motivate you to worship God with complete allegiance? Or is it more of like, yeah, yeah, I know that. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. It's a good theological tidbit. And I'll file that away and, and then I'll move on with, with life. No. This ought to just, just stop us in our tracks and ought to move our attention to Jesus and to move our allegiance to him. And then the last question I wanted you to wrestle with is, could you explain the gospel to someone? Philip ran alongside a chariot, heard the guy speaking, and he says, I got a question about that. Could you explain the gospel to somebody? Could you take God's word? Could you explain to them what it means to be a Christian and how they can get there? That's one of the, the every person who's a Christian should be able to do this. You say, well... 
I'm not going to take a survey on this and you know, see if you can, but maybe some are like, yeah, I, I don't know if I could do that. Well, let me, give you some, let me give you some help there. Number one, don't overcomplicate it, okay? Don't overcomplicate it. Just tell them the story of how Christ saved you from your sins. You can tell them the story. Here's, you have, uh, uh, there's, there's five words that I always go back to, okay? Here's the five words. If you have a handout, there's the blanks. You can fill them in there. It tells the story here. We have creation. You say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see this in Genesis. God created everything, and he created it good. The Bible makes it very clear that he could. He gave them one rule. He gave Adam and Eve one rule, and that was don't eat of the fruit of one tree. All the other trees you could. That one, don't do it. Creation. Next word, fall. Guess what? They ate of the fruit. They told them not to do that, right? Okay? They did it just like two little kids in a room. You say, don't do that. You turn your back, and guess what they're doing? They're doing that. And so he says, so this is how we tell the gospel. Creation, fall. They sinned. What are the effects of fall? That separates us from God. That gets passed on to all generations. And so we're all flawed now. We're all sinners because of our nature. They got passed on to us from those people. So we have creation, we have fall. The next one is redemption. What does that mean? That means when Jesus came and brought us back. That means when Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life of obedience, a life that we can never live, died a death he didn't have to die, rose again, and said, listen, if you believe in me, if you follow me, we'll take all the good works that I did and credit it to your account. And what we'll do is that we will forgive you of your sins, and then you can be part of my family. Okay, and so this is the redemption plan. So we have creation, it was good. Fall, it got bad. Jesus made it better, right? Okay, and then guess what? He's coming back. Right now, we're trying to figure this all out. We're trying to live this life, and we're waiting for him to return. And he's got to return one day, and then we live forever in eternity. There's the gospel right there. It's not that hard. Don't overcomplicate it. Be sure of the gospel in your life and share it with other people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Father, I pray we wouldn't overcomplicate things. I pray that the gospel would motivate us. It would move us. It would cause us to worship you. It would cause us to love you. Father, I pray that we would not be uh, hung up on, on overcomplicating things and, 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 and looking to our own goodness as a way to get to heaven. God, we can't. The Bible says there's none righteous, no one help one. And we just need Jesus Christ. So thank you that this Ethiopian experienced that being despised and being rejected, he could find acceptance and hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us here today, we would have that assurance. I pray for those who need to be baptized, that they would have courage to follow you in that command to prove or show their, their allegiance to you. Father, I pray for those who are either listening in person or online that, that they don't know the gospel saving grace of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day where they, they repent of their sins and ask you to forgive them and they would trust you. And Father, I pray that you'd give boldness and encouragement and worship to the believers who have gathered either here or online, that we love you supremely. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.